Today on Ag News Daily. Neil has reason to be strong right now. Soybeans are going to try to follow along, and it was a pretty good day to the upside of soybeans. Listeners, January 30th, Monday edition of the Ag News Daily Podcast. Tanner and Delaney here, both freezing our tails off here in central Iowa today. <laughs> good way to put that, Tanner. And yes, we certainly are. I haven't even looked at what the forecast is going to be like, but I uh, certainly feel like we've got some coldness here coming for the next couple of days. But hopefully tomorrow we'll be indoors at the Iowa Ag Expo. Did you figure out what day you're going to make it down there? Delaney? Oh, you know what? I still keep forgetting to look at my schedule. But if I if I head down, it'll probably be tomorrow. There you go. Well, I can give a little bit of a quick heads up. North Dakota, parts of southern South Dakota are even going to get it worse or northern South Dakota are going to get worse than us. They've got potential lows as negative 40 degrees coming out of this polar vortex. Then you dip all the way down to Oklahoma and Texas, and they could feel wind chills as low as a below freezing temperature. So wind chill advisories in place for them until middle of the morning today, obviously. We'll see if that persists into tomorrow. Winter storm warnings are in effect for most of northern and eastern Texas, as well as Oklahoma, following those cold temperatures. But that's going to make it quite miserable for some of the livestock that is outside doing. It is. And it's also going to call into question some potential cold snap wheat damage fears, Tanner. But as we push our map southward, we saw Argentina has continued drought fears which pushed soybeans especially higher today. We'll chat about that more in depth here coming up with Ted Seifried during our Market Monday conversation coming up in just a little bit. But yeah, cold weather here in the United States and certainly dry weather down in South America. But as far as some other headlines go here today, you've got a couple of quick hits for us. Japan, fresh export demand today as they bought just over 100,000 metric tons of old crop U.S corn and uh, prices in the Gulf Coast, some folks are saying should be competitive here for the next few months. And the spread is certainly indicating as such. But again, we'll dig more into that new crop, old crop spread here with Ted Seifert coming up on the Market Monday discussion in just a little while. Yeah, we've got quite a few headlines today that we will want to discuss with Ted as we get into that conversation. We did get the first Biden appointee to resign or leave from the USDA. Jewel Ronow, Dr. Jewel, has announced that at the end of February, she will step down to spend more time with her family. She's currently in the role right now that oversees USDA's day-to-day operations, and she'll be the first high-level Biden appointee to depart from the agency since his administration had started. Sounds like the Senate is going to have to add another nominee to their consideration. Uh, Obviously, we reported last week on the other two that are currently being considered. She was the co-chair of the Equity Commission set up in 2021 to address racial discrimination within the agency, sometimes called the last plantation. The USD has acknowledged for decades of racial biases and pledged $2.3 billion in settlements with Black and Native American farmers. And she was one of the leaders overseeing that tranche of efforts. Uh, The Agricultural Secretary Tom Vilsack stated that her work and leadership has been a powerful example for the next generations to come and has created a deep hole for her 
successor to Phil. So there's no immediate word on who that successor is going to be. She was a part of Virginia's State Agricultural Commission before President Biden selected her. So uh, here at the end of February, we will have another vacant USDA post to backfill. Well, Tanner, we also know that at USDA, the Census of Agriculture survey is due next week, February 6th. This is, of course, the 2022 U.S. Census of Agriculture because they don't work quickly in government. But last month, you should have received from NAS the Census of Agriculture questionnaire, which is sent to every ag producer in the U.S. and Puerto Rico. Tanner, I know some folks that don't like to fill out the census. What camp are you in? I don't have uh, much of a dog in the fight, but uh, it certainly seems like harmless information to give to some and others very critical. I don't I don't necessarily have that opinion, but I do have customers on both sides of that coin. Yeah, I know folks on both sides of the coin as well. So if you are planning on sending it in, February 6th is your deadline. That's correct. We look at a conversation I think we're going to ask Ted about here in a couple of moments is the Fed meeting that takes place starting tomorrow. However, Wall Street economists are saying that the looming recession at the end of 2023 may look more like the 1970s than it would to 2008 or the coronavirus effect of 2020. Said the predicting the full impact of the recession might lag in effects due to the Federal Reserve's rate hikes and holds on the reserve funds. The inflation gauge is continuing to be closely watched, but Delaney, it'll be interesting to see what type of a hike we get. A lot of the polls are stating that the interest rate range will go from four and a quarter to four and a half. That would mean just a quarter percent hike. There are several surveys that are coming out saying there may be a half percentage point to try and curb inflation. Inflation numbers did slow sharply to 7.1% in November, but uh, that was mainly due to gas prices falling. It's still higher than their targeted inflation rate. So we will see here what comes out of this meeting and be sure to tune in on our upcoming episodes so we can get a full recap here. Tanner, I'm going to put you on the spot. Are you ready for this? Fire away. Okay. Well, cast out of the bag. I was not alive in 1970s, but I'm curious. You weren't either, but you are a banker. So I'm assuming you probably have a little bit more of the history or backstory there. What was the 1970s era that they're saying compares to current day? What was going on during that time? You know, from what I had judged by the headlines of these articles and the little bit that I had moved into was it came as a recession following stagflation. And I know we've talked about stagflation Mm -hmm. on this podcast before to where you don't necessarily go negative. It just ends up being a stagnant time period to where there is some artificial sentiment built in because things aren't getting worse. So businesses, consumers still continue to spend, even though there's a looming downturn that they can't see yet. So there's a potential that consumer confidence may be high for a period which delays the recessionary effects into a further calendar year. So, for example, that article was just telling us that if we stall out due to these Fed rate hikes and we go back into a stagflationary position, when a typical recession would hit in fourth quarter of 2023, it may be pushed back into 24 and catches more people off guard because they feel like we had that soft landing. I'm using air quotes right, right. now <laughs> rather than a hard landing. So that that's about the only thing that I know from that time period. 
I should do a little bit more research to figure out what the repercussions were uh, of that recession. Yeah, I'd certainly be interested to learn more about that. That's something I've been consuming a lot of podcasts and and information on lately, it seems like. But another thing I've been deep in the weeds on lately has been just the Ukrainian situation, because as we continue to watch fresh missile strikes and headlines and things of that nature, we've got some fresh word out. According to the Ukrainian government, they're estimating that about 25 percent of Ukrainian farmland is not going to be available due to infrastructure and missiles and damage not going to be able to be cropped in 2023. We also saw that followed up today, Tanner, that Ukraine's grain harvest is likely going to fall to 35 to 40 million tons in 2023, which includes about 15 million tons of wheat and 15 to 17 million tons of corn. So really expecting to see things in 2023, kind of be the year where we see some reductions in production and available farm ground as the war continues to wage on. Yeah, that will be something for us to watch. I was going to ask, maybe we should put it on the list for Ted today to get an update on that side of things, maybe get some more information. Uh, I had heard on a podcast over the weekend that according to the UN, India is set to become the most populous country before the end of 2023, overtaking China in that area. And that may be due to uh, significant coronavirus outbreaks in China, plus the after effects of their one child policy, followed also by an aging population. I know if we if anybody's watched a Peter Zion presentation, he also talks a lot about those statistics. But when you talk India's technology and availability for agriculture, they're continuing to move forward with their carbon measurements. While back here in the U.S., an article coming out of Indigo Ag states that voluntary carbon programs are seeing a higher demand than uh, supplies available. Of course, we reported a couple of weeks ago that Indigo announced their second tranche of payments, but they're stating here out of the vice president of commercial carbon that demand is currently outpacing the credits produced by farmers in the program. So they are seeking to get more acres enrolled. The market continues to mature and corporate buyers are increasingly focused on high quality and accurate information of registered verifiable carbon credits. We expect to see this increase continue to go and prices continue to rise as supply is little. Such companies as Indigo have increased their prices to farmers to try and entice them to move forward. Of course, that first round of payments like we reported came in September of 21 and June of 22 had another payment come about and an announcement stated here in the article we reported on in December that there are more payments to come. The price future still looks like they are trying to push it, Delaney, to get 40 to $50 per ton to make it worthwhile for the farmers. They are not at that price right now. Said it looks like their target in the immediate next six months is $30 per acre. That's probably closer to $15 to $20 a ton, Delaney. Yeah, I just saw a headline. I haven't had time to dig really into it yet, but there is also apparently Truterra launching a new carbon program as well, Tanner. Yeah, that's correct. We touched a little bit on that last week uh, when the announcement had come out that they're trying to make uh, resources readily accessible for farmers to adapt to new practices, but uh, certainly big waves being pushed forward by policy. 
Absolutely. Well, I tell you what, I certainly don't have too many other headlines to touch on today before we chat markets. What about you? Nope, I'm out. Let's see what markets closed as and we can get into a conversation with Ted. Absolutely. Well, we certainly saw corn flirting with neutral and the old crop and new crop today, but did finish higher on the board. March corn up three quarters was sent to settle at 683 and three quarters. New crop corn closed two and a half cents higher at 589 and three quarters. March soybeans added 25 and three quarters cents today to close at 1535 and a quarter. November beans put on 16 cents today to close at 1367 and a half. March hard red winter wheat added four and a half pennies to close at 8.73 and three quarters. And as as we hop over to here to take a look at the livestock markets, we saw pretty positive trade today for the cattle complex as well. February live cattle added $2.02 at 158.75. March feeders added 45 pennies to close at about 83.92 and a half. And February lean hogs settled 72 and a half cents lower on the day at 75.15. Tanner, without further ado, let's kick it over to our conversation with Ted Seifred. Well, folks, for today's hashtag Market Monday conversation, we are joined today by Ted Seifert from the Zaner Group at the Ted Spread on Twitter. Ted, how are you doing today? Doing great, Delaney. How are you? I am fantastic, and I'm excited to chat markets with you today, Ted, because it seems like things had a little bit of excitement, especially when we look at the soybean markets today. What's going on? What are we trading today? Yeah, soybeans caught a fair amount of strength today, and. You know, a lot of that was coming from soybean meal pushing into new contract highs. And you say, okay, well, why is that happening? Um, you know, especially since you talk about, you know, the egg situation and bird flu and, you know, sort of a lack of demand for soybean meal. But you got to look at it kind of on a global picture, right? The forecasts for Argentina, the longer term forecast for Argentina got a bit drier. Argentina is the third largest crusher in the world. Uh, By the way, Brazil is the second largest crusher in the world. But we talk more about Argentina because they crush the vast majority of their soybeans for the value add because they're the soybean meal, big soybean meal export market, right? And so if that Brazilian, or I'm sorry, that Argentinian uh, bean crop's going to suffer, really what that means is that their crush exports are going to suffer. And then you have Brazil, which is, again, the second largest crusher in the world, and they're experiencing some harvest delays. They're only about 5% harvested. And if those harvest delays linger, that's just going to leave a bigger window of time before they're able to get product to the crushing facilities, soybeans to the crushing facilities, and then get that meal on a boat and shipped out somewhere. So it's sort of a a right now need mentality. And if you look at soybean meal exports the last couple of weeks, topping 300,000 metric tons both weeks, well, you say, okay, you know, soybean meal has demand in the here and now, but in the longer run, uh, unless that Argentinian crop really falls sharply below 38, uh, I don't know if this is a long-term thing. This is more of a, a shorter-term sort of phenomenon. And you can kind of see it between where, say, the May meal contract is trading versus where the December meal contract is trading in almost $72 uh, a ton higher, right? So meal has reason to be strong right now. Soybeans are going to try to follow along. And it was a pretty good day to the upside in soybeans, despite you know, corn, wheat, not really wanting to play along. 
uh, crude oil, for example, you know, down the dollar eighty. So it wasn't a big risk on day for commodities, and that kind of has to do with what you know what what the Fed's going to do tomorrow. Uh, but this was a soybean meal day, and uh, the beans are, are going to follow soybean meal. That's just how that works. So if we look at corn now, I think I got a text headline this morning about China opening up approvals for exports coming out of more Brazilian facilities. But what's that doing to our corn market, or is there more news than that? Well, uh, you know, we saw the first shipment of corn sales from Brazil on January 10th to China. And since then, we've seen China approve five more GM, uh, GMO uh, varieties. And the reason they did that was to open more, uh, well, they're Brazilian varieties or uh, the varieties that Brazil likes to use. So they're making steps more and more so to open up that door to trade more corn with Brazil. Um, it might not make a whole lot of difference in, in this particular year, but for the next marketing year, that's going to make a big difference. Now, that being said, China's corn demand has dropped pretty dramatically in the last three years. Um, you can argue that a couple of years ago, that was trade deal uh, that was really spurred by the trade deal. It wasn't really there, that demand. They just they had to buy something, I suppose. But either way, you know, just a couple of years ago, they were buying 28 million metric tons. This year, they're scheduled to buy 18 million metric tons. And the the talking heads are suggesting that maybe next year, China will buy 5 million metric tons from Brazil. And if our, and if uh, if Ukraine finds its way to be back online, they, they typically buy about 5 million metric tons from Ukraine. So that's more than half of Chinese needs right there. Uh, so it's a, it is a concern longer term that the Chinese are now doing corn business with Brazil. Uh, and eventually they will do business with the Ukraine again in the ways that they had been in the past. So, yep, the window of opportunity for our exports of corn to China may be kind of closing. Um, we haven't needed China in the past. China is not our largest corn importer. I mean, that would be Mexico. Number two is Japan. Um, it's just not, a, it's just not good news. Right. I mean, I think go back a year or two, and we were really hoping that we were going to enjoy some elevated business with China for years to come. I think this is putting that thought to rest. So, yeah, it's uh, it's not bullish. Um, but given that China has been slowing down on their corn imports anyways, uh, it, it just, you know, it takes something away from us, but it's not catastrophic. And let's talk a little bit here on the technical side about the March, July and the May, July corn spread. What's going on there with that? Well, March, July is trading at a pretty sizable premium. You know, that reflects the USDA balance sheet of having a fairly tight carryover of 1.25 billion bushels. Um, The idea is that further out in time, uh, as we get closer to new crop, you know, a lot of end users will try to push their demand back into that new crop, waiting for fresh stocks to arrive. Uh, it's a bull spread, Delaney. I mean, when you have uh, an inverted market like that, it's saying that we have demand right now and that prices need to be elevated in order to try to ration some of that demand or at least slow it down. Uh, but I got to say, I, I don't know if I see that. You know, I. 
I, I look at our export sales reports every week, and while they've picked up a little bit lately, they're still way below where they kind of need to be to hit the USDA's number. And I don't know, that pricing structure might continue to keep those export sales down. So does corn need to be in an inverted market right now? Well, again, the USDA's balance sheet says that, uh, you know, but are we going to get to the USDA's balance sheet? Meaning, are we going to hit the exports number? Are we going to hit the ethanol number? Are we going to hit feed and residual? I don't know. Uh, I think by the time we get to the end of the marketing year, we're going to be looking at a bit more comfortable carryover in corn than what the USDA is showing us right now. But at least for the time being, we have to we have to respect that. The other thing, too, is that, you know, down in South America, in Brazil in particular, they're, they work a little bit differently than us. Uh, and what I mean by that is that, generally speaking, we hit our highs in our markets uh, in corn, you know, mid-June to early July. And then in soybeans, it's usually two or three weeks later because, you know, we go through, uh, we go through pollination in corn before we get into pod set for soybeans, and we need to make sure that that crop's there. Well, in Brazil, their export crop is their second season corn crop. So... You know, we get that first season of soybeans out of the way, which, by the way, looks really good. I mean, yes, there might be some harvest delays, but also we're hearing what is coming out in harvest being as good as expected or maybe even a little bit better. Uh, But their second season corn crop is just getting planted. So there still is all this weather risk between now and when they go into harvest that second season corn crop. Uh, And right now we don't have any reason to believe there's a problem with that. Uh, But who knows? You know, we have a a volatile weather situation down in South America with a transition from uh, La Nina to neutral to possibly El Nino by the time that uh, that second season corn crop comes off in Brazil. Yeah, I was watching those weather headlines as well. Another headline that I saw switches us over into livestock. This is the week of the cattle industry convention and NCBA trade show where a lot of our cattle producers are hanging out. They uh, saw a bump in the markets today. What are we looking at there on the cattle trade side of things? Well, you know, you had a pretty decent, uh, and actually in my book, kind of surprising, uh, you had some pretty good cash trade at the end of last week, um, which was higher, right? So that obviously helped the market, um, you know, and then the push into highs, I think, had a lot to do with the inventories report that we have coming out, which is expected to be bullish. It's expected to reflect the conversation that we've been having for a couple months now, which is supply dropping pretty dramatically through the first three quarters of this calendar year. So if this report tomorrow does say that, maybe you get a little bit of buy, buy the rumor, sell the fact type scenario after that report comes out. We like to fade bullish news when we have an expected bullish report coming out. Um, but either way, I mean, you know, the buying in front of that, I think, had has a lot to do with the expectations on the report combined with the higher cash trade that we saw at the end of last week. I'm going to say, though, that Packers margins aren't all that fantastic. We are in a time frame where we're sort of in a, a lull of demand because, you know, we just had holiday demand and then we're not it's, it's too early for that springtime, you know, grilling demand. This is kind of a slow spot. So if if domestic demand is somewhat sluggish, I don't know how long Packers are going to be willing to pay the higher prices on the cash side of things. Um you know, so we'll, we'll have to see. But that inventories report, I think, will go a long way as far as defining whether we continue this trend channel higher or if this is a broader, bigger topping formation. Ted, final question for you, because you mentioned earlier, of course, the Fed is meeting this week to talk interest rates and economic policy. 
how much are we seeing the Fed's moves with interest rates impacting the ag commodities and more specifically the export markets? Well, I mean, what the Fed does with interest rates has a direct impact on what happens with the U.S. dollar, right? So the strength and or weaknesses that happens in the U.S. dollar is the most direct impact that we have on X. But as far as what the Fed might do here, there's a, there's a whole, lot of, whole lot of people that are expecting the Fed to raise a quarter point tomorrow and then probably be done with it for now and eventually start to have to lower the interest rate. But I think there's some compelling things out there that would allow them to raise the interest rate even more in the short run and maybe wait longer to lower it. Because, you know, at the end of last week, we saw GDP numbers that were better than expectations and actually kind of surprisingly good. Uh, you have unemployment numbers that are really pretty good. Uh, you have a stock market that, you know, while it's off its highs, it, it still looks okay. So I don't think there's any big red warning flag saying, hey, Fed, you need to slow, you need to pump the brakes, at least not as much as what I think others are making it out to be. So what happens if the Fed does raise a half a point tomorrow uh, and uses language that suggests that they are not done raising interest rates yet? That could be that could be problematic. That would be fairly bullish for the dollar uh, because it takes money out of the money supply. And that could be rather bearish for commodities as a whole. Uh, so I don't know. We're going to be kind of watching closely to see what the Fed does tomorrow. Um, I wouldn't be I, nobody would be surprised if they raise a quarter point. The, if they raise a quarter point, then it's going to be what sort of language are they using uh, as far as the insight that that they can give us into whether they're going to continue on with this or not or what they're thinking. Um, but the dark horse, the surprise would be if they raised more than that quarter point. Well, that might give us a, a bit of a different day or different bit of a different look for the dollar and commodities on one thing. Fantastic. Well, Ted, thank you again for joining us today, folks. That's at the Ted Spread on Twitter. Ted, always a pleasure. Hey, pleasure's mine. Thanks for having me, Delaney. So, Delaney, I'm still learning throughout all these conversations, and appreciate all the experts that we have. But uh, I wonder if. And, you know, our listeners would be a little disappointed if instead of saying a market increased by 45 pennies, if they'd say nine nickels would just be more confusing. What do you think? <laughs> uh, we could try that, but that might be confusing. I don't know if I could do the math quick enough in my head to convert that <laughs> for you. One quarter and two dimes. Yeah, well, you're the banker, so I'll let, I'll let you do that. <laughs> No, you do so great at that. And Ted does such a great job of summarizing the news. Listeners, we got some great conversations lined up for the rest of the week, so don't go anywhere. So what do you say, Delaney, for today? Should we let the listeners go? Let's let them go. 